Hello and welcome to Boiled Down. I'm your host, Greg Astley, Orla Director of Government Affairs. And today we've got a couple of special guests. We've got Alex Wheatley, associate with Fisher Phillips, and Rich Minigello, partner with Fisher Phillips. And Rich, this is not your first rodeo with us here at Boiled Down. No, these uh, feel quite at home here in the studio. <laughs> Now that was it number three? It is number three. Yeah, the first two times we talked about the Trump administration, um, and we are going to chat about that just a little bit at the beginning here. But I did joke that uh, Rich it was my first guest on our very first podcast, and he was going to become the Alec Baldwin a la Saturday Night Live for, sure. the, for the Boil Down podcast. And you promised me at that time when I make my fifth appearance that I get the five-timer special jacket. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we'll start working on that, Heidi. Can you uh, make a note? Thanks. Yeah. Well, Excellent. It's uh, It'll probably be quilted and something we pick up a goodwill, but That's you'll nice. have it. It'll be there. Yeah, so. size medium, sort of a little burly, but <laughs> so, uh, it'll work. Look well, forward to it. Before we get into that, uh, we want to make sure that our listeners are getting the most out of their membership, and to help them do that, we like to highlight a benefit that they may or may not be aware of. Uh, did you know that members get discounted rates with GNSA, local payroll time and attendance, scheduling, and HR management solutions? Orla members receive 39% off our payroll module and 20% off any additional modules. And you can learn more at OregonRLA.org. If you're not a member, visit OregonRLA.org where you can join and start taking advantage of the many growing benefits. And now we're going to jump right into the interview. So let's get started, Rich, with uh, the teaser that we had at the very beginning. Let's let's talk Trump. Yeah, sure, <laughs> sure. Is there anything to talk about? I don't know. It's sometimes it's a little bit dull, isn't well, it? I I feel cheated because according to the president, his first two years of his presidency were kind of stolen from him. So it feels like the last two episodes that we did were just in the void now. Yeah, they yeah. didn't really exist. Right, so. exactly. Yeah, we've we've had we've really done nothing the last two years. It's been sort of laid back and boring and no yeah. real big developments. So. Don't tell my boss. He's yeah. not going to believe that. So, uh, well, what what does the administration mean in in 2019? Now that we're kind of through that, but we're looking ahead to a, an election in 2020. Uh, what do you what do you see out of this administration and, and how they relate to business at this point? Yeah, I'll tell you. You know, I mean, first, like you just talked about, we've sort of maybe gotten through a little bit of, of sort of the controversy in the 2016 election, but the 2020 election is just about here. I mean, yeah. it seems as if Congress, when they get, they're going to go away for the summer recess pretty soon. When they come back, it's, we're just about in the 2020 cycle. We're going to start having the Democratic debates pretty soon. And that essentially is the formal kickoff of the season. So I'm not saying that the administration's already in lame duck posture, but we're getting to the point where if things are going to be accomplished in this term, they're going to need to happen pretty quickly, which is why we've started to see in the last few months sort of a ramp up of regulatory activity, uh, especially as it applies to employers and employment mm -hmm. law. So I think the table's been set for what employers can expect between now and the end of 2020. Um, and Trump's term, um, whether it's the first term or not, I guess remains to be seen. But, I, you know, I, I think the roadmap set in front of us. I think we know what to expect from an employer standpoint. It's fairly positive. Things have remained fairly positive um, from the from the business community standpoint. But there's still some roadblocks, still some hiccups, and things aren't complete smooth sailing. That's the easiest way to put it. That's shocking to hear you say that it's not going to be completely smooth sailing with this administration. Yeah, I know, right? It's uh, <laughs> it's almost as if we've come to expect uh, a little bit of trouble every once in a while. Um, I think unpredictable is the word that we used when we first started talking about this, and that I think that has remained true. That is. I think the only thing that's predictable is that here on the West Coast, every time we wake up, if we get on our phone or the internet, 
we've already missed the first five or six tweets <laughs> that have come out and sort of set the agenda for the day and what, what everyone's going to be talking about. That's the only thing that's that's mostly predictable. I think. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some of those uh, those federal issues, because we talk a lot in our regional meetings uh, and in our communication with members about kind of Oregon-specific issues, what's happening at the state legislature, what are some of the local things. Um, but federal issues obviously have a big impact here in Oregon as well. Um, so Let's talk about one specifically, the U.S. Department of Labor's overtime rule and what that sure. means for Oregon businesses. Yeah, sure, sure. So, you know, taking a, taking a quick step back, I think the last time I was on, we talked about, at that time, probably Alexander Acosta, the Department of Labor, the Secretary of Labor, uh, had been newly, fairly newly installed. And uh, I sort of joked about the fact that I wondered if Trump even knew who he was because he was so quiet and unassuming. And, and that's sort of been his M.O., uh, his entire tenure in the cabinet. Acosta has been probably the least, in terms of carrying out functions of the Department of Labor, one of the least controversial cabinet members. Yeah. Now, he has run into a little bit of controversy over the past few months as uh, some people have looked into his past when he was a prosecutor down in Florida before he became a federal official. But... Um, that doesn't seem to be derailing his cabinet uh, post. Uh, so it appears as if he'll ride out um, his position for the for the foreseeable future, which means we'll see more activity like the the overtime rule um, come into effect. Uh, for, for those just giving a quick recap, at the end of the Obama era, the Department of Labor, then run by Tom Perez, passed a proposed well passed a rule essentially that would have increased. Um, the uh, overtime minimum salary requirement from where it's currently in the $23,000 annual range all the way up, uh, more than doubling it to $47,000. Right. And literally about a week or two before that was to go into effect in, in 2016, uh, a judge put a halt to it. Then Trump was elected. Acosta was put into the Department of Labor post head. And uh, within a few months of his tenure, um, he essentially withdrew support of the of that rule, scrapped it, went back to the drawing board, and uh, just about a little more than um, I guess it was about two months ago, proposed a new rule, and it was pretty much what we had predicted for the past or so year, which was sort of a splitting the baby approach. Sure, definitely. So, so the minimum salary um, in order for employees to be overtime eligible um, was raised from. Um, uh, twenty three thousand a year to about thirty five thousand mm-hmm. a year. Um, the other thing that happened is that in the new rule, um, they scrapped the requirement of an annual automatic look at whether or not it needs to be revised. Okay. Every every year, which or every three years, which had been proposed by the prior administration, which essentially assumed for employers was just going to keep going up and up and up. Sure. Automatic review, you're never going to see it go down. Right. So it was just going to go up. So um, that was proposed in in early March, and now the comment period for that's going to run out in a few weeks, and um, and we'll see uh, what happens from there. But if things continue on track as we expect, this rule will probably go into effect uh, by the end of the summer. Okay. And what should businesses be doing to get ready for that? I know a lot of them when the when the rule changed and the overtime went to like you said, you know, forty eight thousand, doubling it, more than doubling it. Um, a lot of them had to scramble to kind of you know make sure that they met those requirements. Yeah. What should they be doing at this point to make sure they're ready? Look, this is a first is a perfect opportunity to look at those that you have in your quote unquote exempt 
uh, from overtime categories and make sure that the duties all fit, right? Because this is only adjusting the salary component, but there's, there's also a duties component. You, you can't just take anybody in your uh, establishment and say, uh, I'm making you um, ineligible for overtime because uh, I'm paying you enough. You have to make sure that they fit certain duties. Right. And so this is a perfect opportunity to make sure that they fit into those duties and depending on which category they fall into because there's various duties depending on which of the tasks you're putting them under. So if you're not familiar with it, you know, you could always look at uh, the Bureau of Labor and Industries website. You could talk to your Labor and Employment Council um, and make sure that they fit into those. And if they do, then you just want to make sure that your salary adjustment is going to be there. If um, if you haven't gotten it there yet, you might want to work with counsel to determine the best strategy to get them there by whatever date this is going to go to effect, which we don't know yet. Uh, but again, I'm expecting it'll be by the end of the summer. Sure. Okay, great. And Alex, I promise we're going to get to you. But one more uh, question for you, Rich, since we're talking uh, federal. Uh, how about the new EEO-1 pay data requirement and some of the deadlines associated with that. Yeah, yeah. So for those unfamiliar with this, this is like that... Um, it sounds exciting, by the way. It, 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 <laughs> you know, it, it sounds not exciting, but it's this is probably going to be one of the bigger um, impactful um, uh, issues that the federal government has laid down with employers. I, I, I'm honestly going to say in this whole decade, this is a, a pretty massive thing. And, and it's sort of like a horror movie where we thought we'd killed this thing. And it was gone. It was dead and buried, right? We were, we're in that point of the movie where we've moved so past that, and all of a sudden it, it springs back to life. So, so to give everyone a, a primer if they're not familiar, so for, for many, many years now, any employer with over 100 employees or federal contractors um, with, under, with over 50 employees have had to fill out this, um, this requirement, this form called the EEO-1. And it's, it's a demographic form that provides information about uh, it was originally intended for race and gender and, mm-hmm. and other demographic information that you provide to the federal government to make sure that um, uh, from, from an affirmative action requirements and just general big picture perspective, it allowed the government to have some data about the demographics of your workforce. Mm-hmm. Um, in the prior administration, they decided to tack on to that. You know what? Besides demographic data, why don't you add your compensation information as well? Why don't you list out in general categories how much each of your employees is making so that we can subdivide it by all that same data so that we're able to take a snapshot of your workforce to determine whether or not um, there are pay gaps between what you're paying men and women. Sure, pay equity, yeah. Exactly. So um, now most employers, I think, that I know, are very much in favor of pay equity, mm-hmm. but they thought this was a horrible way to get there due to the incredible burdensome nature of filling out these reports and the fact that it's going to create um, just providing just black and white data like this. You don't see the nuances there, and all of a sudden you're going to be providing government the government with information that might make it look as if you're committing pay equity violations, but in reality, once you dive into it, you'd realize you're not right. w- without the nuance there. And um, so a... Uh, a, uh, the government, once again, once the new administration came into place, the EEOC and, and the federal, federal government withdrew this requirement. And again, we, we've been moving along for the last year and a half, two years, completely forgetting about that earlier EEO-1 sure. obligation. And then out of the blue, in early March, a federal judge in Washington, D.C., in response to litigation that had been filed years ago that no one remembered um, – just resurrected the the old EEO one or or the renewed EEO one form and said, um, I don't think the government had the authority to withdraw it. The EEOC, the new administration, didn't provide ample justification to 
warrant you just pulling it out from under. So we, I want you to put it into place. And the EEO one deadline is May 31st. That's coming right up. Coming right up. So um, when the EEOC opened its electronic portal, amazingly, there was no place for employers to put compensation information. And amazing. the judge said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, everybody, <laughs> come on back to our court, my courtroom and let's talk about this. Um, and I'm putting it in much nicer terms than sure. the way the judge put it. And held the EEOC's feet to the fire. Um, and just within the last few weeks, um, uh allowed the EOC to adjust the deadline just because it's going to be such a, a mountain of information that ought to be collected by them. Right. And they have, to, they have to change their entire data collection process online. Um, so now the new deadline is September 30th. Okay. And then, um, and that was just instituted about two weeks ago. And then about a week ago, the judge also said, okay, uh, but because the Obama administration had put this into place and there was no reason for you, EEOC, to have pulled it, they wanted to collect two years of, d- of pay data, and so we're going to have you collect two or submit two years of data. So as of September 30th, uh, employers who fill out the EEO one form will have to provide compensation data not only for about 2018 but also about 2017. Wow. Um, now the EEOC just in response to that later on that afternoon, this is just a week ago, um, just a few days ago actually, filed an appeal of that of the judge's order but also said you know what while this appeal is pending you got to assume that this compensation pay data uh submission is going to happen so yeah. you you better prepare for it employers because so, we can't promise you that that this appeal is going to be successful so in other words don't sit on your hands get your stuff ready and yep. be ready to submit it when it's time september 30th we'll be here before you know it yeah well there goes people's summers i guess right? all gone out the window yeah <laughs> hr manager sorry <laughs> summer vacation canceled more good news from the federal government Well, uh, that seems like a good place for us to stop. We'll take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more Boiled Down. Oregonians care about their food, from our well-regarded dining scene to an abundance of fresh locally sourced ingredients to the highest quality of culinary innovation. Oregon's food industry is second to none. But leading the way means we're responsible to stop wasting this precious resource. As food professionals, we have the power to eliminate food waste. Explore foodwastestopswithme.org to learn more about how to reduce food waste in your kitchen. You'll find important tools for starting a food waste reduction program, video testimonials, webinars, and case studies from businesses that have successfully integrated waste reduction strategies into their restaurants, lodging, and catering operations. You can also get connected to a waste reduction specialist who will help you evaluate your current practices. Visit foodwastestopswithme.org to learn more about how you can reduce food waste in your kitchen. All right, welcome back to Boiled Down. We are discussing workplace law with Rich Menegello and Alex Wheatley of Fisher Phillips. And Alex, I don't want you to feel like you've been neglected here. So uh, we're going to start out this segment by talking to you about a, a couple of different things. Uh, first of all, uh, last year you participated in a seminar on achieving continued success with your cannabis business. So as we see cannabis and food merging kind of in the hospitality industry, can you offer any insights to our restaurant members about how to deal with the current restrictions and maybe what you see in the future in terms of the employment law. 
Um, so yeah, so I represent a number of employers in the cannabis industry, but I only represent them with respect to employment laws. And so I don't uh, have the expertise when it comes to the actual um, compliance and regulatory restrictions that go along with that. Uh, what I can say is with respect to the, the cannabis industry, it is still now very regulated so such that employers that are not or restaurants and other uh, public employers who are not licensed to um, distribute cannabis yeah. aren't able to do so. And so if you're still in a restaurant that is either licensed by OLCC um, or is otherwise in a public space, then there can't be any cannabis consumption actually at that location. Um, and that doesn't look like that's going to change anytime soon. We'll see there are, there's been some legislation or talk about uh, other types of coffee shops and cannabis clubs. And we've seen some of those in the private club space, right? So places that have opened essentially as private clubs to allow consumption on site. But right now it doesn't look like there's going to be cannabis cafes that allow open consumption uh, to, to the public. But that could change. I think that if that changed, uh, it would bring a whole host of employment issues along with that. Right. Not the least of we just finally got to the place in Oregon with our clean air laws where you don't have employees potentially complaining of that exposure to smoke. And so you could see that. Sure. But one of the more interesting things that is happening in the legislature um, and may come out of it is the off-duty consumption sort of issues. And I think that tying back into the food show, yeah. um, that was one of the questions that I was asked probably the most about was that off-duty consumption. Um, and there's currently a bill, uh, as, you, as you know, that would essentially state that anything that is legal under state law that an employee does, it would be an unlawful practice to uh, discipline an employee for, for that off-duty conduct. Right. Um, it's really difficult in the area of cannabis because of the issue with respect to testing. There's no effective test to um, determine current intoxication from cannabis. And so that's where employers have a hard time with the off-duty conduct bill is it takes away... Um, an ability to enforce and make sure that nobody is impaired at work. Mm -hmm. Because as long as, as, as you know, the current state of law in Oregon is that employers are not required to accommodate cannabis use at all. So whether or not it's with a medical permit or recreational, if an employee tests positive for having THC in their system, then you can uh, discipline that employee. Partially because it's so hard to tell whether or not somebody is currently intoxicated or not, sure. the liability that goes along with. That's the bigger concern that employers are seeing now is that if we have an off-duty conduct bill go into place, it would be very difficult and you'd have to switch to essentially only a reasonable suspicion testing regime um, and really train up managers to do that. So we talked a little bit before the podcast about this too, though. I, I had a call maybe six months ago from a restaurant owner who was concerned because of the amount of energy drinks that some of her back of the house staff were consuming and in fact had an employee collapse um, out in the alleyway. Now she wasn't sure if, if he was doing something in addition to those energy drinks, but it brought brought up the issue of impairment, right? And so the importance of just being able to have a policy that says if you're impaired for whatever reason, um, that you may be sent home or disciplined in some way. Can you can you address that a little bit? Yes, and I think that's where a lot of employers are, are switching as a matter of um, necessity as they're finding that uh, the employees 
employee pool, the, the potential pool of employees uh, in Oregon and other states that have um, allowed recreational use, it's very hard to find employees who can pass randomized or, or initial drug screening. And so a lot of employers are moving towards reasonable suspicion type testing anyway. Um, but it brings up a, a bigger point, which is employers' main concern uh, usually is performance on the job. Right. It is whether or not the employee is showing up on a timely basis day in, day out, and doing the job in a competent manner. As long as the employee is doing that, a lot of times employers don't much care what the employee is doing in their own own time. And I think once employers are able to adjust, those who can, some employers don't have that luxury, right? right? Employees that are in safety-sensitive positions or, or subject to DOT testing are in a different category. But other employers are finding that managing performance is uh, ultimately their goal and that they're able to successfully do that um, regardless of whether it's energy drinks or cannabis or whatever <laughs> else they're consuming. Right. Uh, if they manage that performance, they get the productivity out of the employee that they're ultimately uh, paying for. Sure. I- I'm going to jump in and say yeah. consumption of multiple energy drinks in and of itself might be reasonable suspicion that there's something going on with that employee. Sure. So, yeah. yeah. Um, well. Yeah. <laughs> if nothing else, life choices. Yeah, right. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> the amount of sleep you may or may not be getting. Right. So. right. <laughs> well, Alex, you, you did mention the Northwest Food Show, and I want to touch on that. Uh, uh, you presented a seminar on top labor and employment issues in the next year. So what kind of feedback or questions did you get from the attendees on that issue? I, that was a great event. I, I really enjoyed attending, and thanks for having me. Um, yeah. I will say that uh, probably the, the two areas that I touched on that, generated the most uh, interest out of the attendees was Oregon's paid family leave bill that may be coming down the pipe. Um, and Washington already has that. There were a number of attendees from Washington as yeah. well. And so we had discussion about that. Um, and then tip pooling, uh, because of the uncertainty uh, that comes out of the park kitchen case and a couple other um things that have happened because employers understandably uh, in the, in the restaurant world now uh, believe they're in the clear to have tip pools that share with the back of the house. So without going through the entire saga necessarily (laughs) um, the department of labor had a regulation that said you couldn't share tips with those who aren't customarily tipped. And there was a a case within the ninth circuit um, that, upheld that regulation essentially but that case that uh, ruling was stayed upon appeal and eventually the appeal occurred but in the inter the appeal came down and affirmed the the lower courts holding and so said upheld the regulation said you can't share with the back of the house in the interim there was a a budgetary bill that passed in congress which said that you could share with back of the house employees you can't share with managers and the employer can't keep the tips uh, itself, Um, but back of the house can be included. And so um, I think a lot of employers in the restaurant world um, believe that they're in the clear and they are prospectively. The problem is there is some trailing liability that goes along with this. And so there are uh, a few different plaintiff's attorneys in particular who are targeting uh, those restaurants who continued to share with the back of the house during that interim. Um, and there's not really much one can do except for keep your head down and lay low and hope hope that doesn't come knocking. And then once it does, address the issue and try sure. to, to fix it as quickly as possible. But that is one area that was uh, of interest to the members, I think. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, we still get, I still get calls um, probably every week or every two weeks on the tip pooling question. And we actually have a, a restaurant employee compensation work group that's been put together. Uh, Jason Brand, our president and CEO, is helping to lead that with a bunch of restaurant owners to come up with some solutions for folks around the tip pooling issue. Because for some of our members, you know, we they've never done it. Um, if they're a new restaurant owner or if they just hadn't done it in the past. Um, and so knowing kind of what the guidelines are for tip pooling is going to be incredibly helpful. And, and hearing from other people in the industry who have been successful implementing it, I think is going to be helpful as well. So we're looking forward to, to them meeting a couple more times and getting some results out for us. Um, well, so uh, before we jump into why Rich is an author and not an attorney, um, <laughs> let's talk about uh, after hours functions, yeah. uh, where alcohol is involved in the social host statute. Um, and then, a, what a recent Supreme court ruling might mean to employers. There's a story behind that. Yeah, sure. So th- there was a case that, uh, just came down from the Oregon Supreme court a few weeks ago that, um, confirmed some good news for restaurants from the, and, and lodgings from the, from a, um, serving standpoint, but not necessarily great news from an employer standpoint. Yeah. So um, it essentially upheld the social host statute in Oregon while drawing a line. And and so giving a quick background, back uh, about 20 years or so ago, there was a, uh, a restaurant in Coos Bay uh, where a patron had was visibly intoxicated, was served, continued to be served, and then stumbled out of the restaurant, fell down some stairs, and then sued the restaurant for yeah. how dare they overserve me. Um, because they forced the liquor down his throat, I guess, right, was right. his argument. So it's always a funnel and a beer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's uh, Alex's college days <laughs> coming back at him, I'm sure. Um, but so in response, the Oregon legislature passed a social host statute that essentially says that if a uh, any establishment licensed by the OLCC, if it's serving alcohol, and even if it serves as to visibly intoxicated guests, it's the guest's own responsibility um, to... Uh, about what happens to them after they consume that alcohol. So they can't come back and sue the restaurant. Right. So fast forward to a a few years later, um, there's a case where um, a a young woman was working for a construction company in Portland. And uh, she'd just been there a few weeks or a few months. And she claims that her boss, who happens to be the son of the owner of the company, pressured her to come out with him and other uh, coworkers to go drinking after work. And she refused three or four times and then finally felt pressure to say yes. And she claims that she felt as if it was implied that if she did not go, that it would harm her future prospects at the mm-hmm. company. So she went along and um, claimed that the uh, owner's son, the ma- her manager, uh, kept buying drinks, kept, kept forcing people to drink. And in fact, somebody wanted to leave after only two beers and was called a lightweight. And uh, so she felt a, an, uh, an obligation uh, to continue drinking. So she did uh, voluntarily. Um, but uh, she got very intoxicated. Yeah. About four or five hours later, drove off on her own, mm. drove home. Uh, and on the way home, uh, crashed in another car. Uh, uh, when she was tested, uh, blew up point uh, two four. Wow. Uh, or 0.024. Um, hang on a second. L- let me double check that because I think point two four you'd be dead. Well, it depends on your tolerance, but yeah. Let me see. Alex uh, is smiling. Oh, like, maybe pretty like, sure it was point two four. Yeah, pretty sure. Alex is. Alex is I don't remember those college days. Yeah, as at you all. say, he's, so, he's remembering. Like, yeah, point two four. He's remembering blowing point two four. Um, so uh, and she. Um, 
so and now, now to make us all feel bad laughing about this, she became a quadriplegic. Yeah. Um, it was a horrible accident. The, if there's only any good news about it is that the uh, person she crashed into only suffered minor injuries. Mm. Anyway, so she sued both the restaurant that had overserved her and her employer. And uh, the good news is that the Oregon Supreme Court upheld the application of the social host statute in such a situation. And and so the, the, the restaurant was uh, uh, free and clear, and the case against them was dismissed. But just recently, the Supreme Court um, allowed her negligence case to proceed against both the both her employer and her former supervisor. Okay. Um, because they said that the social host statute only protects uh, social hosts, whether it's restaurants or, in this case, employers, for the actual serving of the alcohol. But if they did something negligent in the lead-up of to that or thereafter, that could be a problem. Okay. And so in this situation, they said that, that the factors that led them to consider that the employer might have been negligent is that, number one, there was the implied pressure that she had to drink in order to uh, maintain her job, um, that the employer put this uh, happy hour together on their own without you know, thinking about the repercussions or maybe setting up ride shares or taxis or other things on the way home, and that the employer continually pressured this woman to attend. So yeah. for those reasons, her case is allowed to proceed. So really what, what this means for employers is they really need to button down any after-hours activities. Again, this was an informal after-hours. This wasn't a company party or anything like that. Right. This was just a, hey, let's get together and have a few beers, or maybe more than a few beers. So um, it's uh, it's sort of an eye-opener for employers. It's the first time that the Supreme Court has laid down that, that um, or essentially expanded the social host statute or ensured that the, the um, th- that employers need to worry about it in, in a way that they hadn't really had to before. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good to keep in mind. Um, obviously, uh, as restaurants and, and hotels who have bars uh, and alcohol being served, we always want to make sure we're keeping the safety of the guests first and foremost. Um, but as employers, we want to make sure that when we're having those kinds of either informal or formal gatherings that we're mindful of that as well. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I'd say to you, I, I talk to my restaurant clients about this all the time, just because the social host statute's out there. I mean, it's a it's a safety net, but that's not that's not what you should aim for. Right. That, hey, everybody, don't worry uh, if you serve visibly intoxicated folks because there's this great statute out there. I mean, it's yeah. it's bad business in sure. many different ways. And and again, if you could be held to be negligent in in doing activities either before or after the actual serving alcohol, you could still be on the hook for it. So uh, this is not an excuse for you to serve as much as you want to, whoever you want. Still maintain that, that whatever training that you've gone through. Uh, and, and follow your own internal policies that uh, hopefully say not to serve intoxicated patrons. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, before we get to our last question, uh, I want to ask if there if if somebody wanted to get in touch with you, uh, what's the best way to do it? Rich, I know you have a, a Twitter account that's pr- very active. Yeah, yeah. At uh, PDX Labor Lawyer uh, is my Twitter handle. Feel free to follow me there or on LinkedIn as well. I, I repost most of the things I write or interesting things. Uh, on on my LinkedIn account, um, and uh, so it's under Rich Menigello, and I know that's a confusing name uh, to spell, <laughs> especially if you're driving a car right now. So just go to fisherphillips.com and look for the most confusing name under the uh, Portland office, and and you'll find me. So under the M, that, at least we can get the first M is right. in Mary. <laughs> yes, exactly. and Alex, how about you? If somebody wanted to get in touch with you, yeah, I keep my Instagram private, but um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, also through the Fisher Phillips website, uh, my email is a at fisherphillips.com. 
Great. All right. Well, thanks for that. So I do want to get to this last question. Um, I've been pretty excited about this. Uh, Rich, you're an accomplished writer. You've been recognized each of the past three years. Uh, you were named a J.D. Supra top author in the J.D. Supra's Reader's Choice Awards due to your high level of visibility and engagement that you've attained with your readers on the subject of workplace law. And in fact, this year, uh, you were one of only 228 authors in the country selected for this honor from over 50,000 considered. Now, my math's not good, but I think that's a pretty small percentage of people that got that yeah, award. Yeah, and, and with that award, what's great is when at when I'm at home, uh, my wife asked me to take out the garbage. I say, hey, honey, you realize I'm a J.D. Super top author, in which I, case she applauds, and I, then I still have to take out the garbage. I so. get it. So yeah. did the other 49,000-odd people get a participation trophy? or I think so, yeah. I got a, a pretty cool-looking plaque. I think they got a certificate in the mail they could print out at home. Nice. Um, so, yeah, maybe um, if any of them are listening, something to aim for for next year. Yeah, well, yeah. there's there's come, all that. Come after me. Well, you've also been named as a top author in the country on the emerging topic of the gig economy, which is big for our industry. You edit your firm's gig economy blog, which was nominated by the Expert Institute for a Best Legal Blog Award in both 2016 and 2017. I feel like you're slipping a little bit. Must have fallen off. Well, I don't know if the if, if the awards for 2018 have come out yet. That's what I'm going <laughs> to... I see. That's what we're going with. <laughs> I'm holding right. on to that. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> so, my, so my question after all that yeah, is... Yeah. It, and I've read a ton of your articles. I love going on the Fisher Phillips website and seeing what you have to say. Thank you. Um, what are your top three articles that you would recommend that our mm. listeners read? All right. That's a good one. So probably what I would say is if they go on to my uh, bio on our website, just again, look for Manigello under the Portland tab or anywhere on our website, uh, Fisher Phillips website. Um, I have links to, to um, the favorite ones I have. I would say the, the most recent one um, – that I enjoy. I, I wrote one that, um, if for those who are fans of the holiday movie, and I'll call it a holiday movie, Die Hard. Absolutely, um, is a holiday. Absolutely. Movie. Uh, I wrote a, the Die Hard Survival gar- Guide to throwing your company office party. <laughs> so it it looks at the the uh, the holiday party that was thrown in in Die Hard and talks about the things they did well and the things they didn't do well. In terms of not in terms of security, right, right, <laughs> but in terms of throwing a holiday party and, and the things that could have gotten the legal liability, because if if uh, the, if the uh, uh, the bank robbers hadn't uh, attacked the building, there still might have been some legal issues. That's true. It would have made yeah. a more interesting movie from a lawyer's perspective, just to see the <laughs> ramifications of some of the poor things they did, but maybe not as exciting. Uh, so that's one. Uh, another one I did sort of apt for this time of year around May fourth. I did a blog post about whether under a new uh, legal test that had come out last year, uh, whether Star Wars characters would be considered independent contractors or employees, I oh. guess, of May the 4th. <laughs> of May course. May the 4th be yes. with you, right? Interesting. So that's, uh, so that's that's a good one. And then um, the other one I did last year uh, that I really enjoy, it's part of a series of the last five or six Supreme Court justices, when they've been nominated, I uh, pull out a magic eight ball and I ask the question of whether... Um, if the Magic 8-Ball were asked whether this nominee will be good for employers, uh, what will they say? So I wrote one about Kavanaugh, just as I did for Gorsuch and Sotomayor okay. and Kagan and Alito. So uh, um, that one that one is pretty enjoyable as well because you have to 
really allows you to dig into the background of these uh, nominees before they're on the bench and then take your best stab at how they're going to turn out. And the best thing about predictions columns is nobody reads them after the fact. So, <laughs> so they, they could be wildly wrong, but they're still entertaining while you read them after, before well, the fact. Well, I'm going to recommend that people go and read those. I'm not going to give any spoilers out. But Thank you. Um, yes, those are uh, excellent articles. I'm glad that you mentioned those. And, and they actually have good information in them as well. So entertaining and well, informative. Wow, thank you. That almost <laughs> sounded like a compliment. Thanks, Greg. It kind of was. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to take another quick break, and we'll come back with the Advocacy Watch. Oregon is known for its vibrant and innovative food scene. As food professionals, we celebrate the richness of our natural resources, but truly cherishing our food means not wasting it. We have the power to eliminate food waste. From ordering just enough to using tip to tail and root to leaf, we show our colleagues and customers what's really possible and delicious. The good news is there's free support available to help your business get started. Visit foodwastestopswithme.org today to schedule an appointment with a waste reduction specialist. They'll help you evaluate your current practices, identify areas where you can reduce waste in your kitchen, and provide you with on-site staff training and educational resources. Go to foodwastestopswithme.org to schedule your appointment and start reducing food waste in your kitchen today. Welcome back. It's time for Advocacy Watch. This is where we boil down some of the local, state, and national government affairs issues that you should be aware of. Recently, Hood River County voters defeated a 5% sales tax on meals. The sales tax went down 59 to 41% thanks to voters in Hood River County. It was confusing, discriminatory, and unreliable and would have hurt local restaurants, employees, and would have impacted local residents much more than visitors. Orla worked with local restaurants, employees, and community members to conduct a very successful campaign. Voters sent a clear message to the county that they would not support a sales tax on meals. We appreciate all the help out there from the local folks uh, who worked with Orla. And uh, keep your eye out for anything else that's coming up in other counties or cities around the state of Oregon. Speaking of cities around Oregon, the city of Portland is set to crack down on short-term rentals, uh, specifically Airbnb, Mayor Ted Wheeler's office is readying an ordinance that would ban Airbnb and similar platforms from advertising or receiving a fee from unpermitted vacation rentals. The ordinance is intended to pressure short-term rental platforms to turn over their list of hosts after years of back and forth between the city and those platforms. City regulators claim as many as 70% of Airbnb hosts haven't secured a permit to run a vacation rental in Portland despite ordinances requiring to do so. The city wants Airbnb to help rein in those breaking the law and illegally renting homes. Orla supports the ordinance and the mayor's efforts to ensure everyone in the lodging industry is complying with the laws and ordinances that are in place. Moving south down I-5, the Albany City Council has directed city staff members to alter the city's municipal code to no longer exempt lodging facilities with fewer than six units from the transient lodging tax. The move would affect lodging options such as Airbnbs, VRBO, and HomeAway, which currently do not pay the city's 9% lodging tax. Those options did not exist in 1977 when the city first adopted the tax. The city estimates that the addition could generate approximately $50,000 in new revenue for the city because of an estimated 100 non-traditional transient rentals within the city. 
The TLT committee, along with the Albany Visitors Association and local hotels, have suggested that extending the current TLT tax to all the transient rental properties would more equitably recognize and support the collection and use of those dollars to promote tourism in Albany, which all the rental units benefit from. The change would not create a new tax or increase the current 9% rate. Please keep the emails coming to info at oregonrla.org. Let us know not only your government affairs questions, but also your opinions and what's going on in your area. Speaking of questions, we got one recently about tip pooling in Oregon, whether or not it's legal. And the answer is yes, tip pooling is legal in Oregon. Oregon is one of seven states without a tip credit, and as such, we are legally allowed to do a mandatory tip pool, as long as owners, managers, and supervisors are not participating in the tip pool. You can go to our website, OregonRLA.org, for more information on tip pooling. And Orla is currently putting together a restaurant compensation solutions work group to come up with suggestions on how to effectively tip pool in your establishment. So please, again, keep those questions coming. Emails to info at OregonRLA.org. All right. I'd like to say thank you again to Rich Minigello, partner at Fisher Phillips, and Alex Wheatley, an associate with Fisher Phillips. And to you for joining me today. I'm your host, Greg Astley, Director of Government Affairs for Orla. Thanks for listening.